House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And now joining us is Mark O'Mara. How are you doing today, Mark? Doing very well. Great to talk to you. So, so Mark, now there's been a lot more um, uh, focus and in interest on the, um, you know, stand your ground law, and um, just that with that recent case, um, can you explain exactly what it means with stand your ground? Because I hear so many different stories from people. Yeah, and it, it takes a little bit of history, so um, I'm going to start with a bit of history, which is, it started with the Castle Doctrine, which is basically something that says, if you're in your own home, you can protect yourself. Before that, you know, the king could do whatever he wanted, including coming into your home. So they came up with this Castle Doctrine that says, you're allowed to protect yourself in your own home as though it's your very own castle. And um, meaning if I go in the front door of your castle, you don't have to run to the back bedroom before you protect yourself and use deadly force against me. Then it turned into, well, we need to protect, you know, the sanctity of life. So though you're allowed to protect yourself in self-defense, which we have always had, uh, meaning, you know, if you come at me and I have to protect myself, I'm allowed to do it. Um, that type of self-defense sort of throughout the eons was a way that you could protect yourself. But um, the theory was, one, you can only protect yourself if you really need to, meaning it has to be force that could hurt you, anything from great bodily injury to death. That's the type of force that you can protect yourself with deadly force. So if you come at me with, you know, a... a branch of a tree, I can't just shoot you with a gun because my response to that attack, that force, isn't reasonable under the circumstances. You can't really hurt me. You can't cause great bodily injury with some little branch off a tree. So the concept is you have to look at self-defense fairly fact-specific. And then the law developed to say, before you use force likely to cause death or great bodily injury, you have to try and get out of it. You have to use whatever means you can to get away, to not use the deadly force. So self-defense had sort of grown in its interpretation with the states, the United States statutes to say, before you use deadly force, you have to use whatever means possible to try to avoid using it. Now, unless you're in your house. If you're in your house, then you still have the right, you don't have to retreat before you use deadly force. But out on the street, the thought is, and the case law was, for traditional self-defense, you may have to retreat before you use deadly force. Now, this that is specific to New York. A long time. This was specific, now, what you're talking about is specific Florida law? Nope. No, oh, this okay. is generic law throughout the country. Okay. The law throughout the country had developed to say, within the context of self-defense, if you're going to use deadly force, you have to use other means to try to avoid it, less than deadly force, or try and extricate yourself from that situation before you use deadly force. We all saw the video 
um, Dredka, his defense team, sort of said, well, the pushing on the ground was a violent act, and that, that's called a battery. It might be an aggravated battery under our statute if he caused great bodily injury. That's just the definition. But that was a battery at the very least, a criminal act. So when Dredka looked up, um, if let's just say that McLaughlin backed up 15 feet instead of the three or four that he may have backed up. Well, it would have been more obvious, I think, to most people that Dredko was not justified in shooting him if he was at this point 15 feet away or even turned and ran away, like in my example. The question really is, what, realizing that Dredko was just assaulted, what was his perspective of what was coming next? And I will tell you, and I'm not damning the defense team, uh, they, you know, they put on their case and, and the jury decided um, that it wasn't justified, but what really has to happen in a case like that is you have to be able to get across to the jury what the defendant, the person who did the shooting, in this case Dredka, what he was perceiving. And the problem with perceptions in traumatic events uh, you can use the Zimmerman case as an example, and you can use Dredka, and there's a hundred others, is you have to almost put yourself in the eyes of the person who is perceiving the threat because of what that person is going through. And if I, you know, to defend Dredka, I would say, well, you know, you, you got knocked down, there's a shot of adrenaline that goes up your spine, you don't know what's going on. We all know those who study this tell us you get tunnel in a time of stress traumatic event like pushing to the ground, um, you have tunnel vision, your ears don't work as well, your blood pressure goes up 20, 30 points, your uh, heart rate almost doubles because you have the shot of adrenaline up your spine, the back part of your brain takes over, the front part of your brain doesn't, and all you really think about is survival. And if you get that point across to a jury that that is real, that the perception problems that a person who's just been through a traumatic event, like getting tossed to the ground, um, may well have better explained away why Dreska thought it was an appropriate move to shoot. Now, Dreska had his own problems because Dreska seems to be a bit of a trigger-happy person because the one fact that got into the jury was the, more, the recent event with the truck driver where he threatened that person. And my thought is you have one event, a jury may understand it and, uh, and give you the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. When there's a second event, much more difficult to convince the jury that you are acting reasonably when you seem to do this a lot. All right. Now, now in, in the Zimmerman case, did you use the standard ground law or not? No. No, we didn't. But, but you know, people said, you know, oh, this is a standard ground statute or a standard ground case, and, and everyone focused on standard ground and how unreasonable is standard ground. And look, it allowed for a 17-year-old a, a to get killed, and nobody's responsible for it. There's two things that are that you have to keep very separated. Or three things. The George Zimmerman case was a traditional self-defense case. It was not a stand your ground case because stand your ground case if you really think about it only applies when you have an ability to retreat but 
the statute doesn't require you to retreat. So you have to have that ability to retreat, because after all, if you have no ability to retreat, stand your ground isn't an applicable standard. So in Zimmerman's case, he had no ability to retreat. The facts were fairly clear that Trayvon Martin was on top of him, uh, bouncing his head off some cement, and that he could not retreat. So in the Zimmerman case, it was purely self-defense, meaning you are in a situation where you are allowed to protect yourself. Now, if George was standing up and Trayvon was hitting him in the face, let's say, and if, instead of being on top of him, then yes, we may have said, okay, if George shot him under those circumstances, well, George is in Florida. Florida has a standing ground statute. George doesn't have to try and retreat first. So the fact that George didn't retreat first is not relevant because we're in a standing ground state. But it didn't apply to George's case because he was on his back and could not retreat, so it was just inapplicable. Right. Other thing that has to be kept in mind is this whole concept that many of the standing ground statutes add to it. So it's not just I can stand my ground and I can shoot without retreating. It is the concept that if you are acting in self-defense, not just standing your ground, and that's the confusion that most people have. You're not just standing your ground. If you are acting in traditional self-defense or stand your ground self-defense, if you are acting in self-defense, then the statute says you are immune from prosecution and the state has to disprove that acting in self-defense. Until they do, you're immune. It gives you additional immunity and it gives the um, defendant in this case, so let's call him the, the, the force user uh, or the shooter, uh, it gives them additional protection. And the reason why Dredzka did not get arrested that day, according to Gultieri, who was the, the sheriff, he said, look, I looked at the statute, I looked at the video, this guy says he was in reasonable fear of great bodily injury at the hands of McLaughlin, that's why he shot. I think that's self-defense. This statute says if I'm wrong and I arrest him, I could be held liable to Dredzka for arresting him. So I am not touching him. I'll let the state attorney's office decide what to do. So that's why the, the sheriff didn't arrest him. And, of course, when the, sheriff, when the state attorney did their investigation, found out about these, I guess there's three other events, one that got into trial, two that did not, then they said, we're not giving you the benefit of the statute. We don't think that your self-defense maneuver was reasonable because of your history, so we're charging you with manslaughter. So it just depends on if they dig deeper to find out Dredgka's history, then that would have been questioned. Yeah, and that's what changed the whole thing. Look, if Dredgka had no prior history, no prior events, I'm not certain the state would have um, charged him uh, McLaughlin definitely did back up a couple of feet, but here's the thing, you, you know, and I, I do this a lot, and I talk to a lot of people in stress circumstances and in shooting circumstances, your brain does not act reasonably when it is in survival mode. It really, it sees things, it, things slow down, they speed up, things get larger, threats get massive. They are much closer than you think they are. They are much bigger than they really are when 
you know, when you're perceiving it through a time of, of hyper-stress. And um, if, if, if Dreska didn't have the prior events that, that sort of convinced the state not to give him the benefit of the doubt, he may not have even been charged. Hmm. So the case is probably not done. There would, does Dredge have a case to fight this again? Uh, they're going to appeal it because there were some rulings that were made and also some arguments that were made by the state that I think were a little bit questionable, so I'm presuming that they're going to appeal it. Um, and then an appellate court will decide whether or not the judge made mistakes because that's really what an appeal is, is how well did the trial go and did the judge give the defendant a good trial, or are, or are there questionable rulings that need to be reviewed by the appellate court. So he may, he, he'll file the appeal, definitely, and who knows, he may um, get a new trial. I haven't looked at the case through that filter yet. Okay. So it's not like you can appeal just to redo the case. You, there has no. to be a reason for appeal. Absolutely. No, the, the case is over and done forevermore, unless and until an appellate court says, there was enough of a mistake here or enough problems that he deserves a new trial. Okay. Or, so, you know, the law was applied improperly, things like that. Right. So this, this stand your uh, ground statute, um, do you think it's a good thing and all states should carry it, or do you think it's something that's not maybe so helpful? My personal opinion on a stand your ground statute, the problem... Here's one concern I have. Nobody knew what the Stand Your Ground statute was until the Zimmerman case. Nobody had even heard of it. It, it was on the books, but nobody really, I mean, I was aware of it, but that's because I do criminal defense work. Most people don't know. The concern that I have with the what I'll call the Zimmerman interpretation of what Stand Your Ground is and isn't is that people did get this thought process that, oh, wow, the Stand Your Ground statute is a cowboy statute. You know, come near me or tick me off, and I'm just going to shoot you because I can. Right. Um, and that's not what it says at all. A, a true, perfect understanding of self-defense as modified by a Stand Your Ground statute says if you're where you're allowed to be and you're being lawful and somebody threatens you uh, improperly, you know, you're not causing the problem, somebody threatens you, with uh, imminent threat of great bodily injury and you reasonably perceive that to be happening now, then we're not going to require that you try and run behind a tree because that may put you at greater risk. That's what the Stand Your Ground statute says. And I'm also, and so under that interpretation of it, the idea that you're sort of protecting law-abiding people if they're really being law-abiding and they don't have to put themselves at greater risk. I don't find that too odious, but philosophically, we here in this country have gotten very used to shooting each other, yeah. um, and I think we need to be a little bit more circumspect about that generally. Right. So because the Zimmerman effect is that people tend to think that they have more protection than the statute actually gives them. It troubles me that people may be more emboldened to shoot um, somebody when it's other than the absolute, without question, 
last choice. Yeah, so and that was some of the yeah some of the some of the criticism that that Zimmerman got was okay maybe it, maybe okay you were justified in shooting him but after all you know he probably would have just beat the heck out of you and come on you didn't have to kill him when he was just going to beat the heck out of you and my response to that factually was when I questioned the medical examiner when they were describing Zimmerman's injuries to the back of his head. And I said, okay, well, what was that one? Well, that was seemingly when he bounced him off the back of the head, off the cement. And what about this one? Well, that's about a two inch or two centimeter from that looks like it came from cement. And, I, and that one there, same thing. I said, okay, what about the next one? And the medical examiner said to me, well, there wasn't the next one. And I said, well, why not? And what do you mean? I said, well, because George Zimmerman didn't know what the next one was going to be, did he? That was when he shot him. Mm. Uh, and that's the harsh reality is you don't know, you know, could George Zimmerman have, have said, you know, you know, time out Dick Tracy and thought it through and said maybe he won't kill me with the next couple of blows? But your brain doesn't work that way in times of stress. Your brain says protect yourself. If you're getting your head bounced off of cement, you're not going to hope and presume that it's just going to be a beating and that the next one's not going to crack your skull open. And that's the problem with, you know, how we hold people liable for their, you know, events of shooting. But I do wish we lived somewhere where we would learn to shoot less. No question about that. Right. And one of the, the thoughts was that, especially today with social media, the groups, and uh, everyone, you know, tends to go where they, you know, they enjoy, and, and their news as well. So they'll be, their news will be cherry-picked, and also can't, in this case, I could see some of the news coming in, it's a little bit bastardized a bit, and it, it, we don't have the opportunity to talk to someone like you to kind of get the details to show the difference between, oh, I can carry a gun, threaten somebody, they threaten me, and I can shoot them, there I can use this. So I can see where it can go kind of the wrong direction oh, fast. Oh, there, you know, people believe, you know, people, all of a sudden the standing ground statute post-Zimmerman shooting was the worst statute known to mankind uh, and had to be repealed. Uh, everyone complained to the Florida legislature who didn't change a thing about it um, because they looked at it and said, you know, you can't use the Zimmerman fact scenario as a basis for saying this is a bad law. Hell, the, the law didn't even apply to the Zimmerman case. Yeah. Um, the immunity question, you know, why wasn't George arrested that night? I, I don't think it had much to do with the immunity provision of the statute as it did the facts of it. George gave a very, you know, straightforward, I think, an open explanation as to what he did, um, and they believed him. Mm. Okay, well, that's, that's a call that they would have made with or without, I think, the statutory presumption of immunity. Now, would do you think it would have made a difference if uh, what happened after the case was already uh, finished, like with Zimmerman and his wife and, and some of those charges, if that would have happened before, do you think it would have made a difference? Well, well, in the same sense that Dresger didn't get the benefit of the doubt because he had other events of, of violence or, you know, improper behavior, yeah, I, I think that... Um, you know, what happened to George afterwards. You know, l let me back up. You know, George was a, a, a pretty straightforward 
sort of rigid thinking, but a pretty straightforward kind of guy. We can get into things like, you know, he took a, a black girl to prom. He mentored two black kids. He, you know, things that would have suggested pretty immediately and, and unquestionably that he was not racist mm-hmm. and that um, he wasn't this, this person like they suggested you were looking for a black kid to shoot. You know, but let's face it, you put somebody in body armor and hiding for 18 months with half the country loving him but half the country hating him and, and hunting him and things like bounties being on his head, and that's going to change anybody mm-hmm. um, and have some negative effect of anybody. Um, and I think it did. And I, I think, you know, George got affected by you know, what he had to go through because of the notoriety of this case. And I think some of the fallout of that stress and and everything that he was going through, you know, sort of showed up after the trial with some of those events that he had with the wife and the girlfriend and the father-in-law, you know, and things like that. So, sure, I think that would have an effect. And had those things preceded the trial or the shooting of Trayvon Martin, would the prosecutor have considered those acts in, in determining how to prosecute? Yeah, absolutely. Just like they did with Dredgeka. You know, the, the state in Dredgeka tried to get in all three of those events, I think, or two of the three, and the judge said no to all but one, and then the state had that. So I think that had they had prior acts of violence by George, they did try and get one of them in where he was sort of helping a buddy in a bar who got attacked by an undercover cop that seemingly didn't identify himself as a cop, and they tried real hard to make a lot out of that. So, yeah, it definitely would have come in, and it may well have uh, affected how George's statements were perceived. So It's interesting because I think in 2013 uh, there was an interview on CNN with uh, Chris Cuomo, and he was interviewing a couple, uh, uh, I think a, a district attorney and but what the psychologist the lady almost predicted that was probably what was going to happen in the next in the near future that so many people were after him he's going to have that kind of effect yeah well you know he was again he was um it it was sort of almost celebrity-itis you know you put somebody in the spotlight for so long uh either you get used to the glare or you get blinded by it and you know it affects you I, i I hope that it hasn't affected me that much. Other people might think it did. I don't know. But um, I will tell you that I know other lawyers that, um, you know, you shove them in the spotlight on a high-profile case, and it's like, uh, hey, excuse me, dude. Dude, you're still human. Come on back down. Um, So, yeah, it it can really get to you. We see that with, you know, true celebrities or, you know, uh, actors and things like that, or even ball players who are given a thirty million dollar contract, and all of a sudden they just get absurdly stupid with their behaviors. Mm. Oh, not saying that was George, but celebrityitis will have its effect. There's no doubt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you expect that Zimmerman case to take off like that? No, 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 no. I mean, it had it had hit the locals, and it just started to get a little bit of national when I got involved in it. But no, uh, nobody thought it was going to get like that, and you couldn't have anticipated that at all. It, it, it caught fire because of this sort of combination or intersection of guns, uh, race, um, and media, 
you know, those three sort of came to, and social media, those all sort of came together um, in this conflagration mm-hmm. of, of flow of information that went out that nobody anticipated. The Zimmerman case, I mean, I had people, we were getting emails literally from all across the, the world, Philippines, China, uh, just everywhere. Everybody was watching that case, it seemed. Uh, and it was just hit at the right time with all the right elements um, and just sort of everything we were going through, um, and yeah, nobody thought that was coming. And it, it was, it was an amazing uh, 18, 20 months worth of existence. That first of all, I loved. I just it was great to be involved in. But nobody could have anticipated that. Yeah. What was the fallout like? Like like afterwards? It, it, was there a lot of negativity toward towards you afterwards? Well, you know, it's funny because. You know, I really thought that once the case is tried and put on in an open courtroom and everybody's watching it and the facts will come out as they did and the jury deliberated and they came up with their opinion and obviously I think it was the correct opinion. I thought it was a very strong self-defense case. But regardless, I thought, okay, this is the way it's supposed to work. I've learned to listen to jury verdicts, whether I win them or lose them. And the whole country's looking and they will look at it, win it, lose it, they will understand, you know, at least it was a well-tried case. But there was a lot of animosity with the verdict because, you know, I think the black community looked at this as being an opportunity to sort of right the ship a little bit, you know, that finally we have a case where it's getting the national publicity that all shootings of young black guys should be or should get. This one did, and, you know, we will have, you know, our... We will have our day. And then I think the black community felt, you know, that they didn't get it, whether they were cheated out of it or whatever. And so there was a lot of, of backlash against the verdict um, that surprised me a little bit. Mm-hmm. The problem with the Zimmerman case is that it was not the textbook case or the poster child case for um, how a young black male can get improperly killed by this old white guy, which was the, the context that was placed on top of it, but the facts just didn't support it. And I will tell you, I have seen a hundred other cases, and I've been involved in a hundred other cases, where much better a scenario to present to show how biased the criminal justice system can be against African Americans, because they're normally my clients. And I fought long and hard to show how biased the system is. It's just that the Zimmerman case, the fact scenario did not fit the um, the, echo, the echoing of it. It just wasn't, it, this was not a particularly racially motivated, uh, completely improper, uh, unjustified shooting of a young black male just because he was black. That wasn't the fact scenario of the Zimmerman case. Wow. What, what got you into law? Like, what got you into being a lawyer? Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I think I was eight or nine, and uh, an uncle who I really respected came up to me and asked me what I wanted to be, and being a good Irish Catholic, I said I wanted to be a priest or a lawyer. Uh, I ended up went to seminary school for a little while. That didn't work, so... When I was about 12 or 13, my dad was president of the Uniform Fire Officers Union in New York. This is 
back in the day where there was a lot of tussling between the city, John Lindsay, I think, was the mayor, and my dad, who was president of the union, and they were fighting back and forth. And a, he had a lawyer for the union. His name was Tom Dillon. And um, I always remember how he, my dad would rely on him, first of all, and that he really helped my dad out of some of the situations that they were in and, you know, arguing on behalf of the union. And, and he was calm and, of course, he was very smart, intellectual, and I'm 10 or 11 or 12, so just a lawyer himself. Is, you know, back then, very respected position, not quite as much today as it was back then. <laughs> but that's where um, I probably got my first taste of how lawyers help people. Of course, he was helping my dad, so that's automatic. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's where I got sort of bit with a bug. Then I went to... Well, high school, of course, I went to college and did a lot of law work, and then law school. So, stand your ground in New York State, is there? No, no, I don't believe uh, there is. Huh. No, no. Well, we don't want New Yorkers to stand. <laughs> uh, New Yorkers don't even have guns. They're not supposed to have many guns up there. Now, I, I grew up in Queens, so, you know, I, I love New York. But, yeah, they, uh, they have pretty strict gun laws, and that's a very good idea up there particularly yeah. in a large city like that that's already been through a lot of its own, you know, grow, growing pains and difficulties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, gun reg regulation is good, but, you know, I can get slapped for saying that. Um, mm -hmm. Certain markets... Yeah, we're dealing with a, it's a whole new world that we're dealing with right now with all of the recent, um, you know, uproar about gun rights and gun um, regulation and things like that. It's, it's going to be a very tough... It's going to be very tough to figure out a balance between all of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do, you, do you like TV trials? Do you like the, the being uh, like a court TV idea and that everyone can watch it, you know, from O.J. Simpson up to now? You know, I really, I like it. I mean, obviously, it, it's what I do. So I, I, I love watching live TV. I don't do it a lot, but I'd rather watch a live program, I'm sorry, a live trial than a make-believe program, because a make-believe program, you know, it's dramatized and they never really get it right. I do, you know, strangely because of Zimmerman, it started with OJ, but because of Casey Anthony Zimmerman and now a dozen of others, people have really gotten an appetite for watching live courtroom TV. And look, if they like it and it's interesting and they get to know the process and they get to learn the process, then what we're really doing is teaching them in practice or, you know, three-dimension what the law is. And I think that's educational and beneficial for people to know, you know, what happens with the Jody Arias case and how they're going to prove up that you killed your boyfriend and lied about it or, you know, the Zimmerman case or, you know, the... A motto case that Court TV covered a couple of weeks ago in Seminole County where he killed his family. You know, it's a little bit grotesque sometimes to have a Court TV or a, a TV show about somebody who killed their family, but it's not TV. It really happened. Mm -hmm. And now we're just getting it out to people so that they understand, one, maybe what we're doing to each other, and then, two, how the system handles it. So I will tell you one nice thing about what Court TV does is it shows dynamically how prosecutors prosecute and how defense attorneys have to protect their clients' constitutional rights um, and do it zealously while the state's trying to prove up their case. And I think getting that out is sort of like a 
you know, a live civic lesson to people who need to know a lot more about how to protect their rights and how their rights can be assailed by prosecutors or maybe even cops who aren't you know, always acting above board. Along the same lines, what is helpful to me is your other uh, job as a legal analyst for, let's yeah. say, uh, that right there helps me when I'm watching when they start asking those questions, so that's good. Yeah, and, and quite honestly, yeah, I think that helps because we do know this stuff, just like this conversation we've had here today. Most people went through the whole entirety of the Zimmerman trial watching it for three or four weeks and still didn't quite understand what standing ground was and wasn't. But I think with lawyers who are not just there to hear themselves speak but actually trying to educate the audience can get across some of these nuances. Part of it's just boring, but, the, you know, laws are boring. Well, fake news um, is so fun, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it can be fun. I love it. Um, well, but, you know, trying to get it across to lay people in a way that they understand, uh, I, I love that challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I still know people today that think stand your ground means I could pull up my gun and shoot you if you're yes. swearing at yeah, me on the road. Yeah, they actually think that, I, yeah, you actually see you piss me off, I will just shoot you. Yeah. yeah. That, that is uh, not what stand your ground is there for. I didn't think so. You know, the only thing that concerns me, too, about um, TV trials, but I, I, I think that a lot of times, how do you do your job being watched? Like, I look at what it started like with Marsha Clark and all that. All of a sudden, there's yeah. every tabloid and picture, and here's her with topless on the beach and all that. That's got yeah. to affect the way you do your job. That's, that's sort of where I have a drawback. And, and I think you're right. You know, I think that's a necessary evil. I mean, look at social media. Look at yeah. the Internet. I mean, the Internet is a phenomenal tool. It has an extraordinary amount of danger on it. Uh, yeah. Children who are 10 or 12 years old with three keystrokes can, can find the most vile information known to mankind, literally yeah. in two or three keystrokes. So, you know, you look at the Internet and say, yeah, it has its downside because people will be assailed by it. Same thing with social media. It's a great tool for things like the Arab Spring, but it also is used for bullying and people kill themselves. Children will kill themselves because they get bullied on uh, social media. Another yeah. downside to it, court TV. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I will tell you, I've watched a couple of court TV cases where those lawyers are playing to the camera, mm. you know, with the drama. And that's not, no, 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 no. You don't mm. have the right you know, you're in, you're in there as a lawyer representing one person and one person only, and that's your client. And if you're playing to the TV because you want to get, you know, some TV program, you know, you're not a lawyer. You're a whore. Mm. Um, so you got to be careful about that. And I hope, I mean, there may be some people out there that say, I did. I mean, look what I did with Zimmerman. We had our own, we had our own Facebook page, our own Twitter account. How dare us? <laughs> except, except we absolutely had to. I, I was dealing with the Florida bar on that a, a lot to try and make sure I wasn't screwing up. But we had to just to dip our finger in the torrent of information that was flowing past us on that case, so we can figure out what in God's name is going on, because those mm. are our potential jurors. Yeah. But um, yeah. But you know, people may have said that I was being sort of you know, all egoist with the way I was handling it, but no. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, you know, there's yeah. going to be people that say it, but I, I didn't get that perception well, of it. Well, thank you. Not, yeah. you know, because uh, certain people do play, 
and you can, and oh, I yeah. think they stick out, right? And you're kind of yeah. like, wow, yeah. that's that's a performance. Yeah, and my fear is that we now, you know, it, be, it has become a bit more acceptable, and all of a sudden, five or ten years from now, you know, TV lawyers, you know, lawyers that get on court TV are going to have their own agents and and makeup, you know, hairdressers <laughs> and crap like that. Yeah, you know, that that new lawyers. norm doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, I would too if I had hair. But <laughs> my hair. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so Mark, this has been great. Um, do, do you have a uh, website or any place yeah. that you like to promote? Oh yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Um, it's sort of a brand new redone website. It's www.omaralawgroup. That's O-M-A-R-A-L-A-W-G-R-O-U-P dot com. Um, leave a note. If you have a question, we'll try and answer it. You can call the office at 407-898-5151. I'm here all the time. I work like a dog. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'd be glad to help out. It's sort of what we do, and I love doing it. Fantastic. Well, we'll have that posted on our website as well. Mark O'Mara, thank you very much for being here. Sure thing. Great to talk to you. Be well. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.